So <laughs> this is me, the, the introducer. This is a unique situation to be in, introducing myself. I just want to, you know me, Administrivia. Uh, a couple of things I, I wanted to say. First of all, I want, I want to thank Dr. Packer and me for being <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I also want to uh, thank you for, uh, this has just been inspiring inspiring reading for me. The Administrivia is, uh, today's thought for the day is, we have book club coming up, so does everybody know what the title of the book is? No. Unbroken. Unbroken, which can be purchased at? I doubt it, because I'm giving you months of notice, because I'm a teacher. <laughs> you could read it twice read it and you could buy it now and share it with a friend and encourage them to read it um, and if you're squeamish I've been told to skip the war years which yeah, is how skip, skip the war years yeah skip the bits you don't like skip the whole 20th century yeah, I, I, I skipped much of my, I skipped much of my degree that I, I didn't like um, <laughs> well I, I, I actually Changed my major so I didn't have to do statistics in my undergraduate degree. Are you related to who was named by any chance? No, but thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. I mean, I do aspire to be the unknown only heir of the Earl of Richmond, but I think it's highly unlikely. Okay, the second thing I wanted to remind you, uh, just notify you, is that Michael, our very faithful and dedicated refreshment person, has committed to helping us until the end of the year. Uh, We need someone to replace him, so if you could think about, as we move into the Puritans, inspired to dedicate your lives to service... Uh, feel free to talk to me, and uh, it would be great. And, and, and Michael will, will let whoever is go, going to, to, to oh, yes. join the team uh, no, know how what a rewarding and actually um, doable task that they're going to sign on the dotted line for for the rest of their life. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we just invented you for five years. <laughs> five years. I didn't know That's another exciting benefit. All right. With no further ado, um, let me start by saying, when you pray, rather let your heart be without words than your words without heart. You have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. Or, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. These are three of my favorite quotes from John Bunyan. And if that doesn't inspire you to read the Puritans, I'm hoping that our little talk will. So let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. I pray that you will give us open hearts and wise words to learn what you would have us to learn today and be ever mindful of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what do you do when you're asked to speak on a subject with a 
internationally renowned theologian who spent 50 years studying the subject. You quote him. <laughs> so today, what I have, uh, what I've tried to do is to to draw from some of the many, many fascinating and and uh, learned and informative things that Dr. Packer has written on the Puritans, and try to put it in a, into a brief presentation about some of the things that we can learn from the Puritans. Uh, it'll be a shorter presentation than usual because the great opportunity then is to to talk to Dr. Packer about those ideas. So I just want to give you a, a flavor of the Puritans and around the theme that I've chosen is what we can learn. And the book that I drew on mostly is A Quest for Godliness, The Puritan Vision of the Christian Life by Dr. Packer. So let's talk about what was Puritanism? Puritanism was at heart a spiritual movement, passionately concerned with God and godliness. It began with William Tyndall, the Bible translator, Luther's contemporary, a generation before the word Puritan was coined. And it continued to the latter years of the 17th century, some decades after the word Puritan had fallen out of use. Puritanism was essentially a movement for church reform, pastoral renewal and evangelism, and spiritual revival. And in addition, indeed, as a direct expression of its zeal for God's honor, it was a worldview, a totally Christian philosophy. In intellectual terms, as only Dr. Packer can say this, in intellectual terms, a Protestantized and updated medievalism and in terms of spirituality, a reformed monasticism outside the cloister and away from monkish vows. The Puritan goal was to complete what England's Reformation began, to fi finish reshaping Anglican worship, to establish, to introduce effective church discipline into reshaping Anglican worship, to introduce effective discipline into Anglican parishes, to establish righteousness in the political, domestic, and socioeconomic fields, and to convert all Englishmen, English people, English, to a vigorous evangelical faith. So why should we study them, if that doesn't tell you enough? Dr. Packer has a wonderful analogy and I just, I, I, maybe I think in pictures, I hope that you do too. I hope this helps you. He used the analogy of the redwoods. And he said, some of them are over 360 feet tall. And some trunks are more than 60 feet around. They don't have much foliage for their size. All their strength is in huge trunks with foot-thick bark that rise sheer for almost half their height before branching out. Some of them have actually been burned but are still alive and growing. They dwarf you, making you feel your smallness as scarcely anything else does. California's redwoods make you think of the English Puritans, another breed of giants 
who in our time have begun to be newly appreciated. Between 1550 and 1700, they lived unfrilled lives, in which, speaking spiritually, strong growth and resistance to fire and storm were what counted. As redwoods attract the eye because they overtop other trees, so the mature holiness and seasoned fortitude of great Puritans shine before us as a beacon light. They overtop the stature of the majority of Christians in most eras, and certainly so in this age of crushing urban collectivism when Western Christians sometimes feel and often look like ants in the anthill and puppets on a string. So, and this is me now, why wouldn't we study the Puritans? And so I did some reading of people and some reading of the Puritans, and I think there are three three things that we look at. One is that their literature is long. It's not short. Imagine 900 pages. So it takes dedication. It's written in Old English, so it takes application. And it's not easy. You have to think about it. But I think... You know, the thing probably, and this is my own personal first reaction, was just the, what do you think of when you think of a Puritan? Yeah. (laughs) Funny people in funny clothes doing funny things and saying no a lot. (laughs) So, that's me. This is Packer. (laughs) The belief that the Puritans, even if they were in fact responsible citizens were comic and pathetic in equal degree, being naive and superstitious, primitive and gullible, superstitious, over-scrupulous, majoring in minors and unable or unwilling to relax diehards. What could these zealots give us that we need? The answer in one word is maturity. Maturity is a compound of wisdom, goodwill, resilience, and creativity. The Puritans exemplified maturity. We don't. We are spiritual dwarves. It has been <coughs> excuse me. It has been said that North American Protestantism is manipulative, success-oriented, self-indulgent, sentimental, and blatantly 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep. <laughs> that was that was Dr. Packer quoting someone else. Um, the Puritans, by contrast, as a body, were giants. They were great souls serving a great God. In them, clear-headed passion and warm-hearted compassion combined. They were visionary and practical, ideal, idealistic and realistic, goal-oriented and methodical. They were great believers, great hopers, great doers, and great sufferers. But their sufferings, both sides of the ocean in Old England from the authorities and in New England from the elements, seasoned and ripened them till they gained a statue, stature that was nothing short of heroic. Ease and luxury, such as our affluence brings us today, do not make for maturity. Hardship and struggle, however, do. And the Puritans' battles against the spiritual 
in the climactic wilderness which God set them, produced a virility of character undaunted and unsinkable, rising above discouragement and fears, for which the true precedent and model are men like Moses and Nehemiah, Peter after Pentecost, and the Apostle Paul. So now I want to talk about a series of lessons that we can learn from the Puritans. So the first lesson is the integration of their into their daily lives. Their Christianity was all-embracing, so their living was all of a piece. Nowadays, we would call their lifestyle holistic. All awareness, activity, enjoyment, all use of creatures and development of personal powers and creativity is integrated in the single purpose of honoring God by appreciating all his gifts and making everything holiness to the Lord. There was no distinction for them between sacred and secular. All creation, so far as they were concerned, was sacred, and all activities, whatever kind, must be sanctified. That is, done to the glory of God. So in their heavenly-minded ardor, the Puritans became men and women of order, matter-of-fact and down-to-earth, prayerful, purposeful, practical, Seeing the life whole, they integrated contemplation with action, worship with work, labor with rest, love of God with contemplation of action, sorry, contemplation with action, love of neighbor and of self, personal and social identity, and the widespread spectrum of relational responsibilities with each other in a thoroughly conscious and thought-out way. In this thoroughness, they were extreme, extreme, that is to say, far more thorough than we are. But in their blending of the whole wide range of Christi, Christian duties set forth in scripture they, were, scripture, they were eminently balanced. They lived by method, planning, and proportioning their time with care. Not so much to keep out the bad things, but as to make sure they got all the good and important things in. Necessary wisdom then is now for busy people. We today who tend to live unplanned lives that ran a random series of non-communicating compartments and who hence feel swamped and distracted most of the time could learn much from the Puritans at this point. Second, their lesson for us is in the quality of their spiritual existence. In the Puritans' communion with God, as Jesus Christ was central, so Holy Scripture was supreme. By Scripture, as God's word of instruction about divine human relationships, they sought to live. And here, too, they were conscientiously methodical. Knowing themselves to be creatures of thought, affection, and will, and knowing that God's way to the human heart, the will, is via the human head, the mind, the Puritans practice meditation, discursive and systematic. You have to ask Dr. Packer about discursive meditation. I did. I know I did. On the whole range of biblical truth, as they thought, as they sought to apply themselves, Puritan meditation on scripture was modeled on the Puritan sermon. In meditation, the Puritans sought, would seek to search and challenge his heart, stir his affections, to hate sin and love righteousness. 
and encourage himself with God's promises, just as Puritan preachers would do from the pulpit. This rational, resolute, passionate piety was conscientious without becoming obsessive, long-oriented without lapsing into legalism, and expressive of Christian liberty without any shameful lurches into license. The Puritans knew that scripture is the unalterable rule of holiness, and they never allowed themselves to forget it. Knowing also the unalterable, knowing also of the dishonesty and deceitfulness of the human, the fallen human heart, they cultivated humility, self-suspicion as abiding attitudes, and examined themselves regularly for spiritual blind spots and lurking inward evils. They may not be called morbid or introspective on this account, however. On the contrary, they found the discipline of self-examination by Scripture which is not the same thing as introspection, let us know, followed by the discipline of confessing and forsaking sins and renewing one's gratitude to Christ for his pardoning mercy to be a great source of inner peace and joy. The third lesson we can learn from the Puritans is their passion for effective action. Through the Puritans, like the rest of the human, though the Puritans, like the rest of the human race, had their dreams of what could and should be, they were decidedly not the kind of people that we would call dreamy. They had no time for the idleness of lazy or passive persons who leave it to others to change the world. They were men of action in the pure reformed mold, crusading activists without a jot of self-reliance, workers for God who depended on utterly on God to work in and through them and always, who always gave God the praise for anything they did in retros, that in retrospect seems to have been right. They were gifted men who prayed earnestly that God would enable them to use their powers not for self-display, but for his praise. None of them wanted to be revolutionaries, though some of them reluctantly became such. All of them, however, longed to be effective change agents for God wherever shifts from sin to sanctity were called for. Fourth, the Puritans give us lessons on the idea of church renewal. To be sure, renewal was not a word that they used. They spoke spoke only of reformation and reform which would suggest to our 20th century minds a concern that is limited to the externals of the church. Orthodoxy, order, worship forms, and disciplinary code. But when the Puritans preached, published, and prayed for reformation, they had in mind not indeed less than this, but far more. The essence of this kind of reformation was enrichment of understanding of God's truth, arousal of affections Godward, increase of ardor in one's devotions and more love, joy, and firmness of Christian purpose in one's calling and personal life. In line with this was the ideal for the church that was through reformed clergy, all the members of each congregation would be reformed. Brought, that is, by God's grace without discord into a state that would be called revival, so as to be truly and thoroughly converted 
theologically orthodox and sound, spiritually alert and expectant, in character terms wise and steady, ethically enterprising and obedient, and humbly but joyously sure of their salvation. This was the goal at which Puritan pastoral ministry aimed throughout both in England in English parishes and in the gathered churches of, of the congregational type that multiplied in the 17th century. Fifth, the Puritans teach us to see and feel the transitoriness of this life, to think of it with all its richness as essentially the gymnasium and dressing room, where we are prepared for heaven and to regard readiness to die as the first step in learning to live. Because of their own suffering and persecution, as well as the age in which they, li- they lived, pain and death were their constant companions. They would have been lost had they not gotten their eyes on heaven and known themselves as pilgrims traveling home to that celestial city. The Puritan's awareness that in the midst of life we are in death, just one step from eternity, gave them a deep seriousness, calm yet passionate, with regard to the business of living that Christians today rarely manage to match. And the knowledge that God would eventually decide without consulting them when their work on earth was done brought energy for the work itself while they were still being given time to get on with it. The Puritans also taught us from their knowledge of man, sin, and scripture. The Puritan writers, in the Puritan writers, mental habits fostered by sober scholarship were linked with a flaming zeal for God and a minute acquaintance with the human heart. All this work displays this fusion of gifts and graces. In thought and outlook, they were radically God-centered. Their appreciation of God's sovereign majesty was profound, and the reverence in handling his written word was deep and profound. They were patient, thorough, and methodical, in searching the scriptures and the grasps of the various threads and linkages and the web of revealed truth was firm and clear. They understood most richly the ways of God with men, the glory of Christ the mediator, and the work of the spirit in the believer in the church. And their knowledge was no mere theoretical orthodoxy. They sought to reduce to practice all that God taught them. They yoked their consciences to his word, disciplining themselves to bring all activities under the scrutiny of scripture and to demand a theological, as distinct from a merely pragmatic, justification for everything that they did. Knowing God, the Puritans also knew man. They saw him as in origin a noble being made in God's image to rule God's earth but now tragically brutified and brutalized by sin. They viewed sin in the triple light of God's law. 
his lordship and his holiness. And they saw it as transgression and guilt, as rebellion and usurpation, as uncleanliness, corruption, and inability for good. Seeing this and knowing the ways whereby the Spirit brings sinners to faith and new life in Christ and leads saints on the one hand to grow into their Savior's image and on the other to learn their total dependence on grace, the great Puritans became super-pastors. From Scripture they map the often bewildering terrain of the life of faith and fellowship with God with great thoroughness, and their acuteness and wisdom in diagnosing spiritual malaise and setting out thereby appropriate biblical remedies was outstanding. They remain the classic pastors of Protestantism. So, in closing, the Puritans are giant compared with us. Giants whose help we need if we ever are to grow. Learning from the heroes of the Christian past is, in any case, an important dimension in edifying of the edifying fellowship for which the proper name is the communion of saints. The great Puritans, though dead still speak to us through their writings and say things to us that we badly need to hear in this present time. Thank you. This is Dr. Packer. Meat pa- packaged in a 20-25 minute plan. Wow, so, at this time, I would like to ask if there are any questions. I, Not directed to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard our, our slang speech got affected by the Puritans, like when people wanted to say something derogatory, you could only be re- using religious words, and that's where people attempt to take the Lord's name in vain in our culture now. And so our, our, our language slang got affected in that historical buttress uh, with Puritan, possibly. That's what I heard. I don't know. as a new one for me. But how did Puritanism affect what people use with slang and swear words and stuff that we use, that we hear today? I wonder uh-huh. if it did at all or not. Uh, I think the right answer... John, it really is that um, 17th century popular speech, which is uh, the milieu in which Puritanism, well, Puritanism was leading the culture, it really did for a time, uh, it's a long, long way from where we are, and I can't think of particular instances in which um, Puritan slang has passed into 21st century slang. Uh, I think, though, it is is true to say that um, the Puritans pioneered the development of a way of teaching with simplicity, 
that simply hadn't been seen before. That was uh, the result of some of them being extraordinarily gifted for simple speech. Uh, And um, John Bunyan, who's been referred to, uh, is the supreme example of this, to my mind. And, um, well, if I simply tell you that I don't know a better cross-sectional presentation of the Christian life than Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, I reckon to read Pilgrim's Progress once a year myself, uh, I never get tired of it. Indeed, at each journey through it, uh, I I feel I'm seeing deeper into it. Um, That fact, perhaps, will... uh, suggest something to your pure minds. Bunyan doesn't use slang, but he does use um, what then was colloquial idiom, and yet it's all uh, in, how shall I say it, excellent uh, excellent grammar and style. Uh, there's no cheapening of anything uh, in human reality as a result of Bunyan, as Bunyan's uh, talking about it in colloquial terms. I think it helps, you know, John, um, to, to, to distinguish between colloquialism and slang. Colloquialism often deepens and sharpens uh, our vision of the things we're talking about. And I think that's what you actually have in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But slang cheapens regularly, uh, makes everything seem casual, and, uh, well... (laughs) I've been told there are going to be a number of questions. Thank you. Very well. So, yeah, yes, yeah, this is the best thing you've said this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. No more. Yes. Sheila. Well, they sounded like wonderful people the way you described them, but I don't hmm. think history found them easy to live with. In fact, the whole idea of mentioning Puritanism uh, calls up images of judgmentalism of wanting to inflict their lifestyle and beliefs on other people. Uh, We do have examples of this in the Republic that was established in England. Um, And they were hard to live with. So all this bad press, where did that come from, Dr. Packer? What made them so hard to live with? Well, the fact that they, may I put it this, like this, they wore their standards on their sleeves and by doing so made other people feel uneasy about the way that they were living. Uh, You don't have to have someone actually vocally condemning you to be made to feel uneasy when in fact you're living a life that merits a bad conscience. The presence of the Puritans 
just as human beings alongside you being natural in their own terms makes you feel that you're being condemned. And uh, that is sufficient, I think, to explain why it was that these folk, well, from the first, were called Puritans. It was always, you know, a a term of abuse, uh, a term of mockery. These are the people who think of themselves as pure. Ha, ha, ha. But, but that's a defiant reaction from people with, uh, well, consciences that are uh, somewhat defiled, but who don't want to change, who rather want to defy the influence that they feel is encouraging them to change. And that's the state of mind with which we're very familiar today. Uh, I'm not saying that there weren't. By Jove, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that there weren't um, awkward Puritans, difficult to live with and so on. Uh, Every good thing gets corrupted by somebody who thinks of themselves as supporting it. Yes? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean. But uh, the great Puritans were not difficult to live with. Great Puritans, yes, uh, Bunyan himself, Richard Baxter, John Owen, uh, a long list. In fact, that's just the beginning of the list. But, you see, um, my conscience is being pricked by... so I better stop talking about that. Yeah, Martin had a question. Well, actually, you've, you've begun to answer my question, um, the final answer to the previous question. I was going to say that we've heard of you. You may, talked about the Puritans, but not mentioned any names except John Bunyan. Mm. But now you've mentioned Richard Baxter and John Owen. Um, perhaps uh, I was just going to ask for a few more names of prominent Puritans. How would a reading list? Well, I'll, 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 I, I can give you a few, but um, there'll probably be names you've never heard before. Thomas Goodwin, William Gurnall. Uh, who, who should come next? Um, John Owen? John, well, I mentioned John Owen, but I'll mention him again because he's so outstandingly good. Uh, and... Uh, how can I? Well, yes, I'll say this. Um, he was acquainted with King Charles II, and they were on conversational terms with each other. Uh, Owen, I think, is the only Puritan of whom that was that can be said. But uh, there it is. That's how it was. And Owen was Vice Chancellor of Oxford University at one stage. And you wanted some more names. Uh, William Perkins was the pioneer Puritan. Nobody nowadays seems to know anything about him. Uh, Richard Greenham was the pioneer pastor. He hadn't got the majesty of of theology that uh, Perkins had and some of the others that I've mentioned, but um, he was absolutely brilliant in ministering to troubled and bewildered consciences 
and bringing people into uh, out of um, spiritual muddle and distress into Christian assurance. Many of the Puritans actually excelled at doing that. Uh, it's taking the, uh, substantively um, what they're doing is taking people into the reality and the dimensions of repentance. Um, Thomas Manton now is someone you might have heard of. Uh, Thomas Watson is someone you might have heard of. That's my half dozen, I think. And uh, for fear of... Yes, exactly. For fear, <laughs> for fear of this uh, conscience which rises... <laughs> Every now and then, I, I, I'll ask simply for the next question. <laughs> the uh, Puritans uh, very strongly held beliefs didn't make them pacifists, and I wonder if you would comment on the um, Puritan um, Royalist wars in which John Bunyan took part. Mm -hmm. I, you know, well, start with. Uh, the fact that the Puritans believed in the unity of the Bible and they didn't find the New Testament challenging in any way. The fact that occasionally there are such realities as wars of the Lord. That is, um, wars in which God's, God's values, justice, uh, qualities of that kind were at stake and it was proper therefore to be fighting the, the Old Testament uh, has quite a bit to say uh, about um, that kind of war when Israel invaded Canaan summoned by God and uh, enabled by God through the miraculous crossing of the Jordan and then what they were doing, in fact, was acting as um, God's agents in temporal judgment on communities that, um, again, the Old Testament tells us in some detail, communities that were idolatrous and ungodly <coughs> in practice, in uh, ethics and culture, so and so forth. And... Because they didn't see any um, any New Testament challenge to any of that, uh, they took for granted that there would be times when the cause of God and truth would require war, military action, as the lesser evil in a messy situation. So, what was the civil war about? It was about the fact that the king was seen as disregarding the rights of his subjects. Uh, uh, mottos like no taxation without representation uh, broke surface at that time. In fact, this was uh, a great shift from the medieval pattern which had operated up to that point whereby the king said what was going to be done 
uh, and uh, the king fixed the the money which uh, his subjects were going to provide in taxes and the subjects had nothing to say I mean there was no space in the cultural pattern for them to say anything they just had to do what they were told and that was thought appropriate until a Puritan Bible study led people to question the appropriateness of taxation without representation and that's basically what the Civil War was about the king raised an army in order to enforce the old pattern parliament raised an army in order to stop him doing so Uh, my conscience I think will prevent me from saying anything more about that but uh, <coughs> but that that is how the Puritans understood uh, the war that they they found themselves involved in. They were fighting for God's cause and righteousness, because justice all round is part of God's ideal pattern. So they thought, and so they behaved. And uh, here comes my conscience, just as you expected. Yes. Next well, question. Uh, George Herbert, uh, someone like the name like George Herbert would have no doubt been shaped by Puritanism, by the, the times and the, the flavor of the culture, but how did he differ from, uh, as an example, how would someone like uh, Herbert differ from the Puritans? Well, in terms of his uh, aesthetic, <laughs> that is, his understanding of beauty and and good literature good poetry and so on um, no difference at all Um, uh, Herbert was especially gifted at that uh, in in that department he left Cambridge University and became uh, a country country clergyman uh, out of a sense of divine priority pressing on him And as a country clergyman, well, he wrote wonderful poetry. The simplicity of it and the profundity of it takes our breath away, just as it did, in fact, for at least one Puritan who read Herbert and regarded him as the best poet ever. That was Richard Baxter. Baxter can't say enough in praise of Herbert. Um, Herbert then produces this uh, poetry of devotion. It all all his poetry is poetry of devotion in one sense or another. Um, he also uh, wrote for his own guidance as much as anything um, a brief, well, a brief book, a long essay entitled "The Country Past." Uh, no, the Country Parson. That's right which is um, a breathtaking, breathtakingly searching um, statement of the ideal of the single-minded pastor who gives himself seven days a week to the service, in one way or another, of his people. Um, 
I don't know whether you have ever heard of Baxter's Reformed Pastor. It's a better known book than Herbert's Country Parson. But if you set the two alongside each other, you will be struck by the way in which um, the, 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 the principles and priorities of pastoral ministry is understood by Herbert one, one side and Baxter the other uh, do correspond um, nothing is recorded about Herbert in argument debate or not with um, <coughs> Puritan people with whom we would call Puritans he simply was a quiet country pastor and he died young as you probably know all right, so we have... Thank you. Ed had a question. It's me. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, Dr. Parker, I, uh, I know you touch on this in the quest for godliness, but it might be useful to be reminded of the, the, the distinction in approaches to evangelizing or evangelization or the evangel evangelical witness that you touch on, the Puritan influence versus the North American more recent tradition that I got it right because it seems terribly relevant to today well thank you for the question Ed you invite me to um, dive into the hornet's nest don't you <laughs> if, if I am simple hearted enough to do that uh, I shall get stung, so I'm not going to do it. What I am going to do, though, is tell, uh, tell you how the Puritans approached what we call evangelism as a constant commitment on the church's part. Churches, the congregations of believers, should have, as part of their ongoing life, constant catechesis which means uh, use of a catechism as a basis for instruction in two things which were linked together in the instruction and in the, ins in the mind of the instructor who would, who would be the, clerg the clergyman, pastor. Uh, <coughs> first, the truths that Christians are taught to live by, and secondly, the practice of living by them. Catechisms in the church are documents usually operating by question and answer which link those two things which are separated so often in Christian instruction today. I mean, people take uh, courses learning Christian doctrine. Yeah, but they don't learn Christian ethics in conjunction with the Christian doctrine. They also uh, take part in um, study projects on all sorts of ethical subjects. But the ethical subjects are pursued with lots of contemporary knowledge, but very little theological foundation laying. Uh, and we do need a pattern of regular Christian instruction all across the board, uh, teaching uh, teaching in Sunday school, um, 
teaching in sermons, teaching in courses, that uh, study parties that meet during meet on evenings during the week, that kind of thing. We need in all of that the pattern of doctrine and ethics, what you need to live by and how you are to live by it. Um, we need that conjunction to be highlighted and uh, the fact that the Puritans always linked those two things together whereas we don't that's the first and broadest gap it seems to me um, to take note of in this whole in this whole matter um, then you see with uh, that kind of instruction going on all the time uh, Puritan evangelism was uh, virtually um, equivalent to um, basic Christian nurture. Uh, whereas we tend to think of evangelism as, um, well, uh, bringing people to an initial, uh, initial confession of faith and then you start teaching them after they've come to that initial confession about the Christian life. Well, the Puritans simply didn't see didn't see that as the proper way to to go about it. And there's an organic quality about Puritan preaching and teaching on repentance and faith, and what we call conversion, um, which uh, is an interesting contrast to what we. What we um, offer, what we offer people today, and again, um, I can I'll, I'll refer to, to Bunyan. Think of Pilgrim's Progress. It's a survey of the Christian life. What about conversion? Well, conversion starts on page one with um, the man called Christian uh, in desperation because he's read in the Bible that as a sinner he is condemned and in most editions it's about page 40 where he comes to the cross uh, and is blessed with assurance that his sins are forgiven because they've already been dealt with and all that's recorded in those first 40 pages is um, aspects of the quest for that knowledge quest that is, to know that one is on track for glory. Um, and again, um, here you have presented to you the organic view of the Christian life, um, which we tend simply not to present to people in our own evangelism and then to nurture uh, as practiced today. Well, that, I think, is all that I'm going to allow myself to say for fear of what might happen if I said any more. So, okay. Um, Dr. Hecker, do you know many women uh, Puritans who have left any writings for us? I'm sorry, I can't hear. 
you know any women Puritans who have left any writings for us to read along with the men who have written? Well, first of all, understand the culture. Women were not expected to be uh, teachers. They simply didn't teach in uh, schools, and they certainly didn't teach in the church. And they didn't write all that much. They were too busy shaping the life of the the life of the family and the household. So there isn't very much that I can point you to. Um, I am trying to think th- uh, think of poetesses. There were one or two more in New England, actually, than in Old England. And do you think any of those names will come to my mind? I'm sorry. And Bread Street? Yes, and thank you so much. Anne Bradstreet is a very good example. Um, and can you help me again? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there, there were two or three of them, but um, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a broken reed, so let's have another question. Pardon? Susanna Moody, too late? Well, yes. <laughs> Though I, I can't say I'm acquainted with her work, so we really better had better move on, hadn't we? This, uh, to say that, by the way, is not intended to sound sexist. It's just that I'd like us to make best use of the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just a, a comment. Is, oh. is 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 women taught in the home? So, so, so some of the translators in the Bible, the people that were on the committees for the King James, they learned their Greek. People that were really good at language would be learning that in the, the home. So it wasn't just the men and the women, uh, the men that were fluent in these languages. The women were, and and that's why their sons and probably their daughters who created another whole generation of these wonderful pastors. So if we start looking around in the family lives of all of these people, you'll find that there, where there's wonderful men, there are wonderful women. Sorry. No, it's, 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 it's all right. What, what you say is true, and it silences my conscience because I'm going to respond to it. You understand? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The Puritans had a very clear idea of the home. Now, in the home, uh, father is uh, the head, head of the family. He is the pastor of the family. He is the one who's responsible for maintaining spirit, moral and spiritual standards in the home, uh, Prayer, family prayer, twice a day, actually, was the Puritan ideal, morning and evening. And it was only within that frame that uh, these remarkable women, and yes, you're, you're perfectly right, there were remarkable women who spent their strength um, in the family, uh, keeping a godly home, and teaching godliness on uh, uh, how can I say it? On a, on a deta- in a detailed form um, to the to the children, 
it was expected that the that mother would look after the children um, their instruction after their instruction as instru- uh, sorry their religious instruction um, as well as uh, uh, in other ways until the children were of an age for father to take them over which would be nine or ten something of that kind but, so, but uh, you know the Jesuits have always said give us a child to the age of seven and we've got him for life well Puritan instruction from mother um, is uh, uh, an example actually of that now Richard Baxter he wrote catechisms for father a catechism for father to use and he wrote a simple one titled the mother's catechism which um, was there for mother to use in teaching young children in their youth a question Dr. Patty named a few names for the Puritans. I'm just wondering whether Charles Wesley is to be considered as a part of the Puritans. Charles Wesley? Yeah. Well, he's... Uh, there's a, yes and no is the answer there. Um, Charles Wesley and John and Susanna Wesley, their mother, they, all of them, exhibited lots of Puritan qualities. And it's no surprise that that should be so when you realize that um, their uh, well the dad uh, dad actually had been brought up um, a non-conforming uh, non-conforming Christian and became an Anglican by choice at um, years of discretion and um, the the, 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 say the Puritan the Puritan legacy is if you think of it as a stream well it was flowing steadily through the Wesley understanding of the connection between um, the doctrine of godliness and the practice of godliness so that it is in fact perfectly warrantable to link Charles Wesley with a Purit, a thoroughly Puritan uh, writer of hymns like Isaac Watts and in how shall I say it in, in every really good hymn book there are lashings of Watts and lashings of Wesley and lashings of George uh, sorry lashings of John Newton and the rest uh, around, the, uh, around the margin so to speak don't pause too long because I just move on <laughs> yes, I, yes I, I, I know don't breathe too deeply hold <laughs> 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 on so Jim your mouthpiece this morning gave us a wonderful summary of the reasons for the success of your campaign for curtains which is a major contribution to our awareness of what went on at that time but I wonder if there are any weaknesses that can be identified perfection seemed to me to be the characteristic that was emphasized did you say perfection by your mouthpiece (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that all I, all I would allow myself to say is that Puritan weaknesses were simply failures to live up to Puritan standards. And um, I don't think that I detect in Puritan cultural standards um, any significant weaknesses. Uh, no, I really don't. Were you thinking of something particular? I was thinking of the social and political dimension of their activities. In other words, uh, many of us have lived in Puritan-like congregations which have been extremely assiduous in their following of scripture which have alienated uh, or have cut themselves off from the political and social reality around them mm -hmm. and uh, of course many Puritans did get involved in the politics of, of, of the time but it seems to me yes. that uh, that is a dimension which seems to me to be weak by comparison with their uh, theological and uh, Search for holiness uh, emphasis, which you so rightly pointed out. Oh, I see what I see. What you have in mind, you're referring to the way in which, um, after the Act of Uniformity of 1662, um, Puritans who were not um, in conscience able to contemplate ministering anymore in the Church of England this is Puritan pastors, there are about 2,000 of them, they felt obliged to gather congregations of their own. Uh, the government passed a number of what can only be called persecuting acts, which authorized magistrates to suppress these congregations and imprison their pastors and there was a little over a quarter of a century of that before toleration came. Toleration came in the 18, uh, sorry, in the 1680s with what some people call the Glorious Revolution. Well, by that time, non, you see, nonconformity was established and it was a nonconformity which um, involved uh, keeping your distance from the educational establishment, actually uh, fellows who would, not, uh, who would not conform to the Church of England completely were not even admitted to Oxford and Cambridge during the period of persecution. Um, so educationally they were cut off, politically they were cut off also what... Um, what, what are you thinking of that they, they might have got into? The vote uh, didn't, the vote wasn't given at that stage to most of the people in nonconforming congregations. Um, nonconformists couldn't become magistrates because magistrates had to uh, be members of the Church of England. Uh, it, it, was, it wasn't a situation in which sociopolitical involvement as such could develop um, socially mind the Puritans did set standards of respectable middle class life but nobody 
including themselves, recognize that that's what they were doing. If you'd ask them what they were doing, they would say, well, we're trying to live to the Lord in a very unsympathetic and uh, unfriendly um, British culture. Uh, We think of it as a bad time and we pray that sooner rather than later it'll be over. But uh, that's something which has to be stressed. The marks of the persecution which forced nonconformity to develop independently um, explain a great deal of the cultural heritage that you were talking about of relatively independent congregations um, making a virtue of having nothing to do with, uh, soci- with, with wider society, politics, and the culture of the country. Yeah, more could be said, but isn't going to be. When uh, King James was uh, bringing the two groups together, which, uh, from what I've heard, uh, the expression of herding cats doesn't even begin to describe them. But what were the two, say, two of the issues that the Puritans were fighting with the Anglican bishops about uh, in, in the production of the Bible? In the production of well, the of, 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 of coming to together and and you know the the two issues the the big issues that they were fighting over. Well, uh, the first big issue that they were fighting over was the uh, in the establishment of discipline, church discipline, in Anglican congregations. The Puritans wanted the bishops to enforce a godly discipline um, that is uh, inhibiting in one way or another a spiritual apathy and uh, failure to say it a failure to practice um, a a conscientious version of uh, uh, of Anglican um, uh, of Anglican of the Anglican prayer book ideal uh, they had fought about that for 30 years under Elizabeth Elizabeth refused to let her bishops do anything in response to these Puritan pleas for discipline uh, and uh, Elizabeth Tudor governor. She was uh, a Christian queen according to her lights, but her lights um, reflected the old pattern whereby um, the, the top people said what was to be done and ordinary people had no, opportun- no opportunity to say anything by way of demurrer or um, criticism. And if they if ordinary people did criticize, well, they came under royal displeasure. So all through Elizabeth's uh, reign, the Puritans, with their pleas for discipline, um, in discipline in the congregations, and their pleas that bishops should be charged with um, establishing and maintaining uh, church discipline in, the, in all their parishes, um, 
all of that got the Puritans straight away into very bad odour with royalty and the government and um, it made not the slightest difference to what went on in individual parishes and the, the spiritual standards of Elizabethan parishes were not great the Puritan pastors did what they could in their own parishes but that was all that they could do uh, there was only that if you talk about a Puritan movement under Elizabeth, it was only a movement of consultation. Puritan leaders, pastors mostly, getting together to encourage each other in one way or another. And um, Elizabeth did, for, pra for practical purposes, depose one of her archbishops of Canterbury, William Grindle, for refusing to lower the boom on these meetings for mutual encouragement. Uh, won't go into that. Simply say that it happened, and um, this was still an issue when James I, James, well, James VI of Scotland became James I of England. Um, you spoke of two issues as if you had something specific in mind alongside that but no, I was uh, just no, the, the, no this was the big thing yeah. discipline 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 and I think we have one la maybe one last question as we're wrapping up Sheila mm -hmm. Do you, no, no. Um, <coughs> discipline is something that we don't hear much about in our church that's right um, <laughs> <laughs> yet <laughs> But um, the Puritans went quite a lot farther than imposing discipline on their own community because at the time of the Civil War and the Puritans won, Cromwell with his army on the field praying but also saying praise God and keep your powder dry. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when he became right. the Lord Protector of England, yeah. the imposition of that kind of discipline on a country that did not subscribe to Puritan beliefs openly very much was really fairly disastrous. I mean, it was one thing to close theaters that seemed to be centers that were encouraging all kinds of bad things, but, you know, the curfew, the I mean, it amounted to martial law. And I don't personally believe that this is the way to convert people to your way of thinking and establishing purity within your own life and, or within your own home. <coughs> I don't think you can impose it on a nation. And they were very glad to get rid of Cromwell. That's, uh, I believe, Sheila, a more one-sided presentation of things than the facts warrant. Well, uh, I'd like to hear more about that. <laughs> <laughs> May I have another minute or two? Yeah. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell shot into prominence as a fellow with a natural genius for military operations and the winning of battles. So, uh, in the Civil War, he, uh, well, he in effect 
caused the war to be won by his reformation of the parliamentary army and in individual battles his skill at tactics brought victory after victory and by the time that that peace arrived Cromwell was the top man in England and like uh, other military leaders um, he was used to making his own decision he decisions he was um, a man prepared to carry responsibility now what was the responsibility that uh, he was looked to to carry the now answer the puri- that it was the puritan goal of a godly country all right starting from where we are what was cromwell to do well he developed a pattern for training and licensing evangelical clergy of the Puritan sort. And that was successful in many ways. Uh, And Baxter, an observer of the whole Cromwellian period, Baxter wrote, let me see if I can quote this more or less accurately, that if the Commonwealth had gone on for another quarter of a century uh, after it actually ceased to be England he believed this is Baxter would have become a nation of saints and a model of godliness that would amaze the whole world Baxter was a great realist and that is the great realist commenting on the way that things had changed spiritually in England since Cromwell took over. Granted, in any country where spiritual life is vigorous, uh, there'll be lots of opposition from unspiritual people. And yes, uh, in England it was just the same. The uh, the other other aspect of um, Cromwell's governing, it it was very much one man stuff as I said he was the Lord Protector Um, he appointed uh, major generals as he called them uh, that is um, provincial provincial governors to look after different parts of England and he uh, he established a strong foreign policy and a rational trading policy which meant that by the time he died um, England was regarded with great respect in the rest of Europe because it seemed to be the strongest nation around Uh, and all of that is to be how can I say put into the hopper alongside any um, how can I say it any um, na- naive restrictions connected with the, the Cromwellian order that one might think of. Um, to, to my mind, uh, yes, Baxter and others were right when they said of the Commonwealth, sort of bottom line, it was too short because Cromwell died and nobody could take over effectively from him so they had to have the king back 
and the old pattern of uh, regal administration, which went on until the Glorious Revolution when William III came over and uh, something like, um, uh, how can I say it, just national order with... uh, with the, 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 popul- the population of England not being taxed without representation and so on, um, at last became reality. Thank you. Well, it, our time has come to an end. I want to thank all of you uh, for being with us today and for giving me the privilege of being Dr. Packer's eyes for a day. Uh, Conscience is the word. Conscience. (laughs) I thought you couldn't read. You can always think. Uh, Yes, yes I can. I can spell it too. (laughs) Well, if you think it's been a success, this blending, we may be doing another presentation in the spring. Uh, It's been a privilege for me, uh, the discipline of reading and studying. We always need a deadline. So I, I would certainly encourage you to read uh, Dr. Packer's books on the Puritans or to read the Puritans yourself. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. Thank you very much. And brothers and sisters, I want to say, on my own account, I thought that uh, Alexandra's initial presentation was absolutely brilliant and I want to clap her. I hope you will. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you. It's easy to sound right when you're working with good material. <laughs>